Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. This episode includes graphic descriptions of torture and murder. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under the age of 13. In late 1972, a U.S. college dropout named Roland Haas sat down at a restaurant in Kabul, Afghanistan. After ordering a steak, Roland stared at the throngs of people outside. When his entree arrived, he picked at it, forcing himself to swallow a few bites. He wasn't hungry, but he knew this could be his last meal. Afterward, Roland threw some money on the table and walked over to a nearby hotel. He went straight for the room he'd been told about, avoiding any eye contact with the staff. He knocked upon arrival, and a large, muscular Afghan security guard let him in. Then, a short, well-dressed man appeared. This was Abdunabi, a local drug lord, Roland's target. Roland pushed down his fear and put on a smile, trying to appear friendly. Abdunabi shooed his bodyguards out the door, supposedly telling them to fetch the Americans some food and drink. Now alone, Roland knew this was his only chance. So as Abdunabi leaned in to shake his hand, Roland grabbed Abdunabi's arm and yanked him into a reverse headlock. He felt Abdunabi's neck break beneath his biceps. The drug lord was dead. Roland dragged Abdunabi's body along the floor, placing him in a concealed area. Then, He moved toward the door to prepare for his next visitors. By now, Roland's heart was beating so hard, he felt like it would burst out of his chest. And as soon as the two bodyguards returned, he struck. Roland shoved his knife into the first one's throat and stabbed the other in the chest. Then he cleaned his knife, checked that there was no blood on his clothes, and strode out into the hotel lobby confidently. Halfway around the world, he knew he'd made the CIA proud. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. 
Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on CIA extrajudicial killings and the Church Committee. Last time, we explained how the CIA has largely avoided oversight on its controversial methods for decades. We talked about how the agency spied on American citizens and even led a lethal assassination program, which the Church Committee brought to light in 1976. In this episode, we'll explore three conspiracy theories about the agency's covert operations. First, we'll discuss whether the CIA sponsored terrorists who went on to commit mass murder. Second, we'll consider whether the CIA directly assassinated several foreign leaders. And finally, we'll ask the question, does the CIA still kill people today? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. The term extrajudicial killing is legal jargon for when a person in a position of authority murders someone without due process. The perpetrators might be dictators, soldiers, or even police. These events often happen during wartime or under covert operations by the government. As we saw last time, the CIA had a hand in killing plenty of people during the Vietnam War but they tended to solicit others to do the dirty work for them. And this attitude may have led to other major atrocities. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. The CIA armed and supplied terrorists who killed untold numbers of civilians, including American citizens. This theory is easier to understand when we consider the historical precedent When the Spanish invaded the area today known as Guatemala in the 1500s, they forced many indigenous peoples into servitude for hundreds of years. For centuries, the country's resources and circumstances were exploited by outsiders. And 100 years after the country gained independence from Spain, it became the target of another outside force, corporations, Foreign businesses exploited the country's instability for profit. 
Perhaps the biggest perpetrator was United Fruit, an American multinational corporation that imported tropical produce to the United States. In the first half of the 20th century, the company partnered with Guatemala's dictators to buy up the country's farmland. By the time the Cold War began, United Fruit controlled almost 40,000 jobs in Guatemala and owned the country's telephone lines and railroads. All told, its investments in Guatemala were worth about $600 million in today's currency. In other words, American investors had a lot on the line in Guatemala. So when the country's new president, Jacobo Arbenz, confiscated 1.5 million acres of privately owned land in 1952 and divided it among 100,000 peasant families, the stage was already set for conflict. This outraged the American investors, who immediately cried communism to their political allies. Even if the world's largest communist regime, the USSR, had zero interest in the tiny Central American country, it didn't matter. The U.S. ambassador to Guatemala sent a telegram to Washington saying that, even though Arbenz wasn't actually a communist, he was close enough. President Eisenhower feared that the USSR would use Guatemala as a Soviet beachhead in the Western Hemisphere, so Eisenhower wanted Arbenz gone. And the CIA obliged. In August 1953, the agency began work on Operation Success, the codename for its mission to overthrow Arbenz. Despite being primarily an intelligence-gathering outfit, the CIA was eager to prove that it could be a powerful covert military force as well. So they set up guerrilla training camps in neighboring Nicaragua, and they supplied an exiled Guatemalan colonel named Carlos Castillo Armas with machine guns, mortars, and piles of cash. Armas was bold and a longtime rival of Arbenz, so the CIA thought he'd make an excellent puppet to replace the entrenched Arbenz. As Armas was preparing for an insurgency, the agency was also flooding Guatemala with propaganda against Arbenz. They concocted headlines claiming that communist assassination squads were roaming the countryside. And CIA-backed media outlets claimed that Arbenz was forming a new church to worship Stalin. Long before anyone knew the term fake news, the CIA made it into an art form. On June 8, 1954, President Arbenz temporarily suspended constitutional guarantees as the crisis approached. His foreign minister pleaded with the United Nations to intervene against the American-backed aggression. The U.S. responded with force. The CIA handed out bazookas and machine guns to Guatemalan residents and encouraged them to kill police officers. But this wasn't enough to defeat Arbenz. Through a third-party financier, the CIA bought dozens of surplus fighter planes and shipped them to Guatemala. Then, on June 22nd, pilots dropped bombs on Guatemalan troops in the capital city. Arbenz eventually accepted defeat and stepped down from power on June 27, 1954. Eleven days later, Armas became president. A curtain of blood descended on Guatemala. 
The new president rounded up and murdered hundreds of people in his quest to eliminate opposition. It was pure chaos and paved the way for decades of civil conflict in Guatemala. Each successive leader received military aid from the CIA, some of which was very likely used to murder civilians. For example, in the 1960s, President Mendez Montenegro received $6 million in cash and $11 million in military equipment to shore up his regime. Under the guise of ridding Guatemala of communist rebels, the country's armed forces gunned down thousands of political opponents. All told, the government reportedly killed more than 200,000 innocent people over three decades of strife. Guatemala may not have panned out exactly as the U.S. planned, and yet the mission was considered successful by many. After all, the agency stomped out any stench of communism in the country. Ultimately, Guatemala was only the beginning for the CIA. Soon, they set their eyes on a new target, Afghanistan. Like Guatemala, Afghanistan wasn't strategically important during the early decades of the Cold War. And in 1978, the country had few exports and minimal global political influence. However, Afghanistan did share a border with the USSR and Iran. And that meant whatever happened in Afghanistan could influence the Soviet Union's grip on world power. So in April 1978, when a coup overthrew the Afghan government and replaced it with one more sympathetic to communist countries, Washington was on high alert. Their concern grew in the summer of 1979, when the Soviet Union dispatched a battalion of soldiers to prop up the faltering Afghan regime. The CIA felt intervention was necessary to weaken America's greatest enemy, so the agency covertly funneled money and supplies to the Mujahideen, a religious group waging war against the Soviets in Afghanistan. This only escalated tensions, though. Soon, the Soviet intervention became a full-scale occupation, with over 500,000 Soviet troops in-country over the course of a decade. In response, the U.S. funneled guns, ammo, and surface-to-air missiles to shoot down Soviet helicopters. Weapons flooded Afghanistan from all sides. During the Soviet occupation, it's estimated the Soviets killed over one million Afghans. For little gain. Nearly 10 years after they invaded the country, the USSR called it quits. Humiliated, they left the country in February 1989, signaling the beginning of the end for the Soviet Union. From the CIA's perspective, the war was a huge success. Sure, by some estimates, they'd funneled over $20 billion to do it. But in the end, they defeated the Soviets, and that's all that mattered. But success always comes with a price. When both countries left Afghanistan, billions of dollars in military equipment and tools ended up in the hands of warlords and narcotics traffickers. To defeat the Soviets, the CIA had directly funded rebel fighters. And now these rebels were fighting for control over a war-torn country. Amidst the ensuing power struggles, a new hardline religious group emerged on the scene. 
The organization recruited from the disillusioned Mujahideen, who were easy targets. They were desperate, trained, and heavily armed. Some in the CIA were alarmed to learn that the fighters they'd supported just years before were now joining a religious activist group. They had no idea the harm they would cause to Americans. Because that small religious organization the Mujahideen fighters were joining was Al-Qaeda. The group was on a mission to destroy the United States. We can't get into all the details of how these fighters paved the way for other members of the group to orchestrate the largest terrorist attack on U.S. soil, but it is surprising that after what happened in Iran, the CIA didn't think twice about arming religious zealots in Afghanistan. Still, in both cases, their strategy technically worked. The U.S. wanted to make both countries susceptible to U.S. pressure, and they wanted to stomp out any threat of communism. In that regard, both of these missions were successful. That doesn't really outweigh the enormous toll these insurgencies took on both locals and Americans. To me, our first conspiracy theory, that the U.S. funded fighters who sponsored people who went on to commit mass violence, doesn't seem like much of a conspiracy theory at all. It happened. That's true. The CIA did channel guns and money to murderous dictators in Latin America and, according to some analysts, unwittingly armed the people who caused 9-11. I don't think they anticipated the level of violence these people carried out, but the CIA clearly had working knowledge of what they were capable of. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most believable, I give this a 9. I agree with you, but it's the government's job to consider the unintended consequences of policy. It just doesn't feel like that happened here. Plus, the U.S. government has apologized for some of these crimes over the years, so it seems like they are fully aware the CIA funded these killers. It's a 10 out of 10 for me. What seems clear is that the coup in Guatemala and the war in Afghanistan were done at a distance. The CIA enlisted others to kill, so Americans didn't have to get their own hands dirty. But when it came to toppling foreign leaders, sometimes they got a little more personal. Coming up, CIA hitmen take aim at America's enemies. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com slash cults 
to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And on behalf of everyone here at Parcast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. And now back to the story. As we saw in Guatemala and Afghanistan, the CIA loves to arm bad guys to kill other bad guys, even if it leads to disastrous long-term consequences. Enlisting outsiders is a dangerous game, though, and sometimes the agency preferred to keep their operations in-house. Which included murder. As the church committee discovered, the CIA tried to kill foreign leaders, However, the intelligence agency seemed to claim that they'd never actually gone through with their plans. But maybe that just means CIA hitmen were really skilled at covering their tracks. Which leads us to conspiracy theory number two. CIA assassins were behind the deaths of notable public figures, including foreign heads of state. In the 1950s, a grassroots independence movement began in the Republic of the Congo. Since the 1800s, the Congolese had lived under oppression and apartheid at the hands of Belgium. But across the country, indigenous communities stood up against their occupiers. And eventually, a brilliant political orator, Patrice Lumumba, led the country to independence. In 1960, he became the Republic of the Congo's first prime minister. It was a Pyrrhic victory. Almost immediately after the Belgians left, the economy collapsed and sections of the National Army mutinied. After a riot took the lives of several Europeans, Belgium invaded the now-independent Congo. Again, their presence was like rocket fuel to the violence that was already simmering. So, in July 1960, Lumumba reached out to the Soviet Union for help stopping the Belgians, a request that set off alarm bells at the CIA. Outside of the USSR, Congo contained some of the world's largest known deposits of uranium. The very first atom bomb was made using ore from Congo. So, the U.S. government was determined to keep this nuclear material out of Soviet hands at any cost. On August 18, 1960, a CIA station chief named Larry Devlin cabled headquarters that the Congo was in the midst of a communist takeover, and Lumumba was at least partly responsible. When director Alan Dulles conveyed this to President Eisenhower, there was a long pause. In a calm voice, Ike allegedly replied that Lumumba should be eliminated. Around a month later, a plain-looking, bespectacled young man limped off a plane in Kinshasa. He wiped his brow with a napkin, feeling the oppressive humidity already soaking through his shirt. He met his contact and announced himself as Joe from Paris. He'd come bearing gifts. Joe's real name was Sidney Gottlieb. Despite his humble appearance, he was the CIA's top chemist. And he was dangerous. Gottlieb had worked with some of the world's most lethal poisons. 
He was part of an informal group of CIA chemists, comically known as the Health Alteration Committee. Larry Devlin brought Gottlieb to his home, where Gottlieb proceeded to remove a poison kit containing a vial of liquid botulinum toxin from his luggage. A single gram was enough to kill a million people. However, this batch was meant for only one man, Patrice Lumumba. Devlin was aghast, but Gottlieb assured him that the operation had been authorized by the President of the United States and laid out the plan to Devlin. One of Devlin's operatives would inject the liquid into something Lumumba could ingest, like food or on a toothbrush. The Prime Minister wouldn't know anything was wrong for several hours. Then the botulism would kick in. First, his facial muscles would become weak. The sensation would be so intense that he'd find it difficult to swallow, move his eyes, or even keep them open. Then, the weakness would move to the rest of his body, and slowly, all of his muscles would become paralyzed. Eventually, his heart would simply stop. This plan was smart for a couple reasons. First, foul play would be difficult to identify in an autopsy, so no one would know any better. And because of how slowly the paralysis took effect, the assassin would have plenty of time to flee. According to the church committee, though, the CIA never got the chance to use it. This was because Larry Devlin saw an easier way to take Lumumba out of power. He'd leave it to one of Lumumba's political rivals, future dictator Colonel Joseph Mobutu, to do it for him. To that end, with the CIA's blessing, Devlin gave Mobutu whatever he asked for. Cash, guns, airplanes, you name it. On September 14, 1960, Mobutu seized power, likely using the weapons he'd gotten from the U.S. But this also meant Lumumba was still alive. So the next January, Mobutu's men handed Lumumba over to another one of his political enemies, who killed him by firing squad. Several Congolese and Belgian officials watched from the side. The CIA may have been present as well. In fact, one anonymous former agent recalled driving around Katanga province afterwards with Lumumba's body in his trunk. Lumumba wasn't the only public figure to be murdered while CIA conspirators looked on. Supposedly, the notorious communist Ernesto Che Guevara met a similar fate. Guevara hated the CIA as much as they hated him. He was in Guatemala during the CIA-funded Arbenz coup and witnessed the violence the agency sowed. Unsurprisingly, his outrage at the CIA's actions in Central America propelled him as he helped Fidel Castro take control of Cuba in 1959. To the CIA, Che was just as bad as Castro which meant he joined Castro at the top of the agency's hit list. But in 1965, Cuban intelligence revealed that he'd been killed in the Dominican Republic. The CIA believed they'd missed their chance. Obviously, it came as quite a surprise then when, in 1967, they learned he was in Bolivia helping communist rebels start a revolution. 
The agency immediately dispatched two agents to hunt down Che alongside a squad of American-trained commandos. The team was soon alerted to Che's location. During the attack, Che fled into the jungle with a handful of loyal comrades. They eluded capture for another six months. But on October 8th, the commandos surrounded the ravine where Che's group was living, and then they opened fire. After a brief battle, Che's comrades were dead and he was in handcuffs. The CIA and their Bolivian allies interrogated him all night inside an abandoned schoolhouse. Then, at 11.50 a.m. the next morning, the Bolivian High Command ordered their soldiers to execute Che. A Bolivian sergeant named Mario pulled the trigger as the two CIA agents who helped track him down watched on. I'm sure most people would call that a smoking gun. If we're considering whether the CIA has ever assassinated a foreign leader, these are two really good reasons to say yes. I disagree. The CIA definitely plotted to kill Lumumba, but the only proof the CIA was involved was the unverified testimony of an unnamed CIA operative. As far as we know, that blood was on Mobutu's hands alone. True, but he was basically a CIA operative at that point. It's hard to believe that someone in that position would do something as consequential as kill a political rival without looping in his benefactors, especially since they wanted Lumumba gone too. You could be right, but as I said, there's no proof. Well, we now know that in 1954, the CIA compiled a top-secret assassination manual for their agents. It included techniques for making deaths look like accidents. To me, this looks like there were numerous examples when the CIA had blood on their hands and wanted to create a game plan for covering it up. And in Che Guevara's case, he was killed in front of CIA agents after they helped catch him. On a scale from 1 to 10... I'd give this a nine. That's true. They definitely had a hand in Che's death. But to the best of our knowledge, the agents weren't even CIA officers, and they didn't actually make the final call. In fact, one of the agents told his handlers that he was working hard to keep Che alive. They probably wanted to use him as leverage or to gather more information, but his captors wouldn't have it. So for me, the theory that CIA assassins were behind the deaths of notable public figures is a five. We shouldn't try to let the agency off the hook that easily. After all, they wrote a literal how-to guide for killing people. For all we know, they didn't stop after the church committee's revelations. They could still be murdering people today. Coming up, CIA assassinations in the modern age. And now, back to the story. As we saw last time, the Church Committee's interim report on assassinations changed the game for the CIA. The Senate aired the agency's dirtiest secrets, and President Ford grudgingly responded by banning assassinations. 
The CIA claimed they never violated the president's executive order. They insisted they'd learn their lesson and promised to do better from then on. But many people doubted that pledge, which is why conspiracy theory number three is so popular, that the CIA continued killing and conspiring to kill long after 1976. In his memoir, Enter the Past Tense, Roland Haas, a self-described private contractor for the CIA, described his chilling profession in grisly detail. In 1971, Roland was enrolled in a college naval ROTC program when he was approached by a CIA officer who called himself Phil. At the time, Roland was a mediocre student with a drug habit. Phil knew this, but all he cared about was Roland's fluency in German and Russian. So he offered Roland a job. Over the next several months, Phil became Roland's handler. He arranged for Roland to take specialized training in navigation, wilderness survival, and martial arts. Roland knew he was being groomed for something important, but also something dangerous. Phil never asked him to sign anything. He kept Roland's name off of all official documents. The reason for this was deniability. He planned to send Roland on deep cover missions behind enemy lines. If Roland was caught, the agency could say he was acting alone. In other words, no one would come to his rescue. When Phil decided he was mission ready, he told Roland to leave college. But Phil didn't want Roland to just drop out. Roland had signed a commitment to the Navy, which meant he had an obligation to serve in the armed forces. So to break free of that contract, Phil said he had to be expelled. Phil instructed Roland to steal a camera from his ROTC program. Then, Phil arranged for Roland to be arrested. The police charged him with arson, grand larceny, and conspiracy against the government. It was a very public and very humiliating exit. His CIA handler made sure that he didn't serve any jail time, which paved the way for Roland to relocate to Munich, Germany in the fall of 1972, where he enrolled in school. He was still getting settled in when Phil appeared once again. They sat down at a beer garden and Phil gave Roland his first assignment. There was a drug dealer in Afghanistan who was causing trouble for the agency. Roland's job was to liquidate him. At first, Roland thought it was a joke, but Phil was serious. He gave Roland a manila envelope stuffed with names, maps, and wads of cash. He also handed Roland a knife. That's how Roland ended up in a hotel room in Kabul, Afghanistan, killing his first three people. He fled Afghanistan and traveled through Pakistan and India for a while until he got a message from Phil, another job in Turkey. Roland found someone with a van willing to drive him. However, the route took him back through Afghanistan. He was crossing the border with Iran when the Iranian police arrested him. The interrogators beat and tortured Roland, trying to get him to sign a confession. He refused. Soon after, the guards marched in and declared he'd been sentenced to death. They blindfolded him, shoved him up against a wall, and pulled the trigger. 
But Roland soon woke up in a hotel unharmed. All he remembered was gunfire and the sound of guards laughing. He soon received a letter from Phil. Despite Phil's promise that the cavalry wouldn't come, he'd managed to somehow save Roland's life. Harrowing as the experience was, Roland wasn't deterred yet. When he'd recovered enough, he went back to work. He killed a Turkish national in Istanbul and then helped a mysterious East German defect to the West. Eventually, though, the trauma and danger of being a CIA goon took its toll. He told Phil he wanted out. Phil relented, and for a while, Roland lived like a normal guy. But Roland's drug habit remained, and his life soon deteriorated. He got in trouble with the law, and his wife divorced him. In 1982, shortly after Roland's 30th birthday, Phil returned to his side with a new assignment. By this time, Roland knew all about the church committee debacle and Ford's executive order. But Phil laughed it off. The ban on extrajudicial killing had tons of loopholes, he insisted. Rather than call it an assassination, Phil called it a military operation in self-defense. If someone just happened to die while Roland was undercover, that was just an unfortunate accident. The victim was collateral damage. His target was a car full of West German terrorists belonging to a group called the Red Army Faction. Roland knew they would be driving through a specific tunnel around 8.30 at night, so he picked a location by the side of the road and hid. After a few minutes, they saw their car coming through the tunnel. He aimed carefully and shot the driver in the head. The car skidded off the road and crashed, knocking the remaining passengers unconscious. Roland approached the vehicle cautiously. He saw three young women inside. He knew they were terrorists, but in that moment, they looked like children. Still, he chose to finish his job. He snapped their necks and set the car on fire. Eventually, Roland returned to the U.S., and years passed without him discussing his work for the CIA. In fact, Roland's family had no idea about his dark past until he surprised them with his memoir in 2007. But there's one big catch to Roland's story. In that very same book, he admitted that he had no way to verify the events inside. Several former CIA employees called it a hoax, and the CIA's spokesperson said he never worked for them. However, by that time, his story didn't seem to be the most pressing revelation about the CIA's behavior. By the mid-2000s, the CIA was more focused on creating killing machines to fight al-Qaeda. After 9-11, the U.S. military community focused every ounce of its energy on crushing al-Qaeda. The full force of America's Army, Navy, and Air Force came down like a hammer on Afghanistan, and then Iraq. They immediately encountered a big problem. Their enemies didn't fight in battle groups or fly in helicopters. Al-Qaeda's soldiers had learned well in their fight against the Soviets. They emerged from the shadows to attack American forces, then retreated just as quickly. 
Stopping them required two things, good intelligence and a quick reaction time, which the CIA was in a terrible position to provide either, since they had almost nobody on the ground in Afghanistan. Enter the killing machines. At the time, the agency was still experimenting with unmanned aerial vehicles, or drones as they're commonly known, but by the early 2000s, they figured out how to mount anti-tank missiles on the bottom of a Predator spy drone. On November 3, 2002, the CIA launched one of these into the Yemeni desert. It circled overhead until its little camera found its target, a sedan carrying one of Al-Qaeda's top lieutenants. The drone operator pushed a button, and a Hellfire missile streaked down from the sky, turning the car into wreckage. Back at headquarters, the mission was considered a resounding success. From that moment on, targeted killings became a weapon of choice for the CIA. Drone strikes in Yemen alone killed more than 1,000 alleged terrorists, and technically, Yemen wasn't even a conflict zone in relation to the U.S. The program ramped up in 2008 under President Obama. The CIA sold him on the idea that predators were an effective tool to remove the leaders of terrorist groups from afar. It was cost-effective and had the added bonus of keeping American troops out of harm's way. What the agency didn't talk about were the mistakes. According to historian Tim Weiner, drone strikes killed more than 20 innocent people in a two-month period in 2002. That was in Afghanistan alone. A report by the Open Society Justice Initiative found numerous examples of missiles killing civilians, including pregnant women and children. Whether these deaths were the result of bad intelligence or because civilians entered the target area, the circumstances shouldn't matter. They were killing civilians. And lying about it. In 2011, one of President Obama's top advisors boldly declared that drone strikes hadn't killed a single civilian, except that the military's own internal account admitted they'd killed over 1,000. These figures came to light in 2021 after the New York Times gained access to a trove of previously unreleased documents. However, considering that the CIA carried out more than 50,000 airstrikes in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, the Times suggested the real death toll could be considerably higher. Other airstrikes were in countries that America wasn't actually hostile to, like Pakistan, Libya, and Somalia. The rules for when and where the CIA can strike are vague, to put it mildly. Like Phil told Roland, the ban on assassinations had loopholes big enough to fly a missile through. We've seen this grow even worse in time. When former President Donald Trump was elected, he weakened those rules even further. In other words, the legal gray zone for assassinations has only gotten wider. With the advent of new technologies, the CIA no longer needs hitmen like Roland Haas to kill. They can do it with the push of a button. As far as this conspiracy theory is concerned, I think it's pretty clear the CIA still kills people. Maybe now more than ever. On a scale from 1 to 10, I give this a 10. It's a thorny question. 
First, we can't really trust Roland Haas's story. His book reads like a spy novel, and we can't authenticate any of it. Well, John Rizzo, one of the CIA's top attorneys, admitted that handlers never included the actual names of their assets in official documents. So that would explain why we can't prove he worked for the CIA. Still, even if his story is bunk, many drone strikes are clearly extrajudicial executions. I see what you mean. It's undeniable that drone strikes have killed innocent people and that prosecuting that sits in a legal gray area because some have argued that drone strikes aren't assassinations but legitimate combat operations. And although the CIA is involved in these, they work in tandem with other branches of the military. All said, that's enough evidence for me to give this theory a seven. It seems that the agency has always thrived on legal ambiguities. Which makes the CIA's checkered past quite the lesson in unintended consequences. Perhaps Congress will pay attention and bring stronger oversight to the agency. But until then, we'd all better be wary of taking their word for it. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on the CIA, amongst the many sources we used, we found Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA by Tim Weiner, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember... The truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Xander Bernstein, edited by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore, with fact-checking by Bennett Logan and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, The Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible. So we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. <laughs>